everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Brian Bowling with you, and with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. I like to think you're actually with me. With us today is a special guest, Olivia Philippart. She is a transplant clinical pharmacist who specializes in liver and kidney transplant uh, where I work at the University of Kentucky. And uh, she's going to join us to talk a little bit about uh, some scary stuff, immunosuppression drugs. And in fact, we're, don't worry, this isn't a transplant episode. Everybody's turning the podcast off right now. Uh, but we're actually going to go up to Brandon's neck of the woods in the MICU, and he's got a case for us up there. Yeah, we wanted to delve into this because transplant can be scary. And I think any topic that starts to feel hyper-specialized um, and involve really specific populations and maybe unusual diseases or circumstances um, can be a really important thing to get into, especially when you can't always rely on those things happening to other people. <laughs> transplant patients may... Uh, you know, they get, may get transplanted at specialty centers where you may or may not work and may get followed by their specialty teams. Um, but the patients walk amongst us and may end up in your ER or ICU no matter where you are. So that's what we thought we'd explore. How are these patients different from the ones you might be used to? And um, that one of the most important areas is the, the drugs they're on. So, Olivia, you are covering... Uh, our ICU as the font of wisdom known as the clinical pharmacist, when this 50-year-old female um, turns up in the ICU, and she has a history of diabetes and hypertension, and because of those things, about seven years ago, had a kidney transplant performed. Um, after the uh, typical post-op course, things have settled out, and she's actually been quite well being maintained on an immunosuppressive regimen of tacrolimus and mycophenolate mofetil, who um, is one of my favorite French-Romanian watercolorists as well. She came to the hospital because she had five, six days of shortness of breath and a cough um, until she finally came to the hospital where they found her hypoxic, ended up on oxygen with escalating requirements, she wasn't really febrile, but had kind of a borderline elevated temp. Heart rate was around 100, a little bit low blood pressures. Her creatinine was normally around 1.0. Now it's around 1.6. She got a little bit of fluid. She gets placed on some pressors, comes to the medical ICU on high-flow oxygen, and then within the first day requires intubation for worsening hypoxia. Right around that time, has a positive test come back for COVID-19 pneumonia. Uh, as well as um, a gram stain of her sputum, which has some gram-positive cocci in it. So the team is thinking, well, she has COVID, perhaps also a bacterial pneumonia. But they're all scratching their heads because while they know how to treat those things, they're not sure about the wrinkle introduced by her transplant and her medications. So help us out here. Just setting aside this particular patient... Um, Speaking of transplant in general, what are some of the common drugs or regimens that people will find themselves on for maintenance, kind of maintenance immunosuppression um, after these transplants? And, you know, what should we know about these drugs? You know, what are the important takeaways? What should we tuck away, especially if we don't deal with them all the time? 
Yeah, great setup. Appreciate you guys having me. And yes, I'd be happy to provide a background of some of these drugs. I'll keep it as simple as I can for our listeners out there. Um, but your setup is pretty commonplace, to be honest. Um, typically, no matter what organ a patient has for their transplant, there's really three group of mainstays of their maintenance immunosuppression. So I can help introduce those. You've already mentioned two of the three groups. Um, but regardless of what organ they're on, um, they typically are on a calcineurin inhibitor, which is typically considered the backbone of their maintenance immunosuppression. You mentioned tacrolimus. That is the more common and newer one. It's uh, slightly more potent. It is more potent. And so we are able to utilize that to prevent rejection easier than its cousin, cyclosporin, which is the older, typically more commonplace in patients who have had their transplants for longer or have had side effects to tacrolimus. Um, so these, this medication works by augmenting the calcineurin, which is an enzyme inside a T cell, and basically prevents T cells to propagate by making IL-2, which is one of the cytokines. Um, so basically depletes that and prevents the expansion and proliferation of T cells. That all sounds very fancy, but basically it helps augment your body's immune system. The second group that we see most commonly is introduced really as anti-proliferatives, but we see them more, most commonly as mycophenolate mufatil, as you so pleasantly introduced. Um, the brand name of that is Celsept. People might know that a little bit easier than the mycophenolate mufatil, but there's actually two versions of it. Um, and so in your hospital, you might see mycophenolate acid, mycophenolic acid, or mycophenolate sodium. And that is known as myfortic, something that should be determined when you have a patient that is intubated is it is an enteric coated product. So you would have to use the mycophenolate mufatil agent versus the um, myfortic if a patient comes in and is on that at home for your reference. So these are um, different formulations, but yes. kind of biologically the same. Biologically the same, but actually different dosing. So you might see 180 milligrams versus 250 milligrams, which is considered something that's equivalent from a dosing perspective. But a lot of hospitals have both of these on formulary, and it's something that can commonly be misconstrued or complicated between the two agents. Okay, so um, discuss with your local pharmacist what you have yes. and what would be equivalent dosing that you can give yes. through whatever route the patient has available. Yes, okay. exactly. Um, but something that's important about the antiproliferative mycophenolate is that this works on an enzyme within T cells and B cells to basically prevent the differentiation and proliferation of that. It inhibits the de novo guanosine nucleotide synthesis, which again sounds very fancy, but it targets those specific cell lines instead of other parts and other cells in your body. So it's very targeted, very specific towards your immune system, which makes it very well at preventing rejection. What's something that is unfortunate when patients come into the hospital septic is because of how specific it is, 
and the off-target effects of helping the different parts of the immune system come to the place of inflammation or a place of infection is that this can actually mitigate or decrease someone's ability to fight off an infection that they have. So mycophenolates, the antiproliferatives are typically ones that we hold when someone comes into the ICU septic. Um, so that's a key thing that if you are admitting a patient to your service and they're acutely septic, like you've mentioned, we would want to hold or at least dose reduce that agent until we figure out what's going on. The third group that I'll mention for the purposes of this is your glucocorticoids. I know our audience likely knows most about glucocorticoids, so I won't focus too much on this, but typically patients are on prednisone and the dose can be dependent on the organ and how far out they are from transplant, but typically they're on a maintenance dose long-term and that's anywhere between five and 20 to 30 milligrams, depending on the organ. This can just further augment their ability to have an appropriate immune response to coming into the ICU with sepsis, but it's something that plays a key role if we have to switch up their glucocorticoids to something that might be like a stress dose steroid or something like that. Um, so those are really the three main groups that I'll mention to start off here um, when we get to our patient. A patient like this, we know how to treat COVID, pneumonia, sepsis, yeah. but this patient is on these drugs. How is this patient different from the typical person who has these same diseases? I mean, the obvious answer seems like they're immunosuppressed in some way, but what does that actually mean? In what way are they not immunocompetent? And, you know, what do we do with that fact? Yeah. So unfortunately, that's a loaded question, but I know I knew this was coming with this presentation. And so what we see is it really depends on their time from transplant, how much of the drugs that they're on to find your relative amount of immunosuppression. Um, so if someone is less than a year from transplant, you likely have a pretty good understanding that their immunosuppression is going to be much more than someone like this patient that's several years out from transplant. So it is relative. Um, all three of these classes help reduce your body's innate immune response. So your T cell immune response and also some B cell immune response. Um, so this likely puts them more at risk for anything you can get in the community. So after one year, we're really looking at community-based pathogens, um, but also viral latency reactivation. So I would be putting viruses, particularly viruses like CMV, cytomegulovirus, on the top of your differential if someone's coming in, maybe with leukopenia and you're not really sure where to start. So particularly susceptible to viral infections, including ones that we often don't worry about in immunocompetent people, but perhaps also, you know, things in the community like COVID or influenza or whatever, right? And then the bacterial infections that we, we see normally, are they, they have an increased risk for those as well? So again, it depends on their time from transplant and what medications they're on. If you're seeing a patient that is less than a month, less than six weeks from a transplant, say it's a liver transplant patient, you should be worried mainly about nosocomial infections, any infections that are derived from their surgical um, procedures and complications, things that are leaking from where the surgery happened, things that might be 
longer times that they might need longer to get better from the infection, particularly you mentioned COVID-19. But bacterial infections, depending on how often they see a hospital or if they are a complicated patient that's been admitted several times, you should be thinking more on the multidrug resistant pathways, thinking about your MRSAs, thinking about your pseudomonas, things that you might not see in a normal patient and have the ability maybe to start off with a broader spectrum agent and then narrow as you see things come back that make you think that this might be less of an advanced type of pathogen. Okay, so the their exposures to healthcare and, and different organisms, like any patient, are, are important here. How much they've been hospitalized, whether they're very recently post-operative and so on. You know, we know how to... Uh, culture patients, start them on broad empiric antimicrobials, narrow that based on the findings. Is that just the same here or are there any changes to that process? I mean, you mentioned they may have some risk for some particular viruses, which we could perhaps send some tests for, but other than that... This is where you have to differentiate with the organ and their time from transplant. So a lung transplant patient that is a few years out, and we know that they are seeded and colonized with certain multidrug-resistant agents or pathogens, is going to be much different than maybe a kidney transplant patient that's had a very normal post-operative course that is just coming in from the environment with COVID-19. So you really have to look at your patient and what their clinical course has been post-operatively to determine if you need to be raising the alarms for other types of infections that may be less common. Um, I will put a note in here for donor-derived infections. That's really something that we think about within the first month after transplant. And opportunistic infections, you would start to consider those anywhere from one month to starting to be around a year after transplant because that's dictated with when their prophylactic agents for PCB, PJP, and viral prophylaxis may be stopping, which is a place where they would be at a place where they might actually get that infection right afterwards. Um, So a couple of key timeline points. And if you know that a patient has had a recent episode of rejection and received much stronger agents of immunosuppression, like methylpred boluses or something like thymoglobulin, which is an induction agent that we use for rejection, that would put them back really at square one at their immunosuppression burden and their risk of infection. So typically these patients, we know a lot about their history because they're followed very closely at either the transplant center that you're at Or you can get the paperwork from that center to figure out when you need to optimize or further broaden someone's anti-infectives early on when you don't know what's going on. Okay, so when you're talking about earlier infections, like immediately post-op or in that first year, you're more likely to consider something that they either got from the transplant or that was maybe latent in them that was unmasked by the new immunosuppression so this is particularly your viruses, your, your herpes, your CMVs, things that are just kind of out there and perhaps already in you and me, but are, are not so much a concern. Um, and oftentimes those will be better understood because 
patients are tested for these things, donors are tested for these things. Uh, it's hopefully not a surprise that they're present, right? People kind of know what the status is. Whereas if you're, you know, years after transplant on a stable regimen, hopefully this kind of thing is not kind of newly emerging, and then you're more in the realm of the normal infections that we're used to dealing with. Um, does a patient with immunosuppression like this need uh, longer courses of antibiotics for routine infections? I had a feeling this would come up. Unfortunately, as a broad-based blanket statement, we will have to typically have longer durations, and that's because your trials that you see with duration for certain infections really don't include transplant patients within them. We know that even though you're getting a common or community-based infection when you're further out from transplant, these patients may still react or have a more severe infective course than someone that is not on maintenance immunosuppression. So typically, we lean towards the longer end of durations than the shorter end, unless someone clinically gets better very quickly. We don't have complicated, complicating factors that we're looking at to make sure that we mitigate and get rid of the pathogen, since these patients are much more sensitive to having complications with disease. And if you culture out an organism from whatever body part you're treating, uh, we can still generally narrow our empiric antibiotics to whatever it is that we find, just like we will with anybody? Yes. I would say an exception to that may be a liver transplant patient or a pancreas short small bowel transplant patient that has some complicating factors with their postoperative course, knowing that you might have an active source like a biloma or something like an abscess surrounding what that organ transplanted was, where you have to cover for pathogens that may or may not grow, such as anaerobes. Okay, so reflecting on the actual test characteristics of our tests and, you know, if you would have reliably grown something if it were present and, and could feel confident that was the only organism and so on. And I think we often understand that. You know, we treat septic patients, never grow something and, and say, well, we can't really narrow or, or so on. Okay, so patients who are on these drugs who come in with infections, you said you may or may not need to hold or modify the doses. Obviously, they are to some extent immunosuppressing, but I imagine there is also a risk for... Uh, the organs, right? If you take them off their immunosuppression. So what, I mean, what are the considerations here? Does it depend how sick they are? I, maybe it depends how early it is after transplant, it sounds like. I can help provide some key decision-making points here, depending on what your patient looks like and what their scope of disease is. Um, for someone that's coming into the ICU with severe sepsis, they're being intubated in multiple pressors. That is what takes precedence there. So we are going to be focusing on the infection rather than making sure they're at full dose maintenance immunosuppression that they came in on. I mentioned earlier that stopping the antiproliferative, typically that would be the mycophenolate mofetil or um, myfortic, which is the enteric-coated version again. That would be the first thing we would typically do if we're worried about a bacterial, fungal infection, even a viral infection. Um, especially if someone has cell counts that are more on the leukopenic side. 
because that is a, a common side effect of this agent. And that's something that we want to take off for side effects and making sure that we can have somewhat of an activated immune system towards the pathogen at hand. If someone comes into the hospital, is not acutely septic, crashing and burning into the ICU, we can continue their maintenance immunosuppression and treat through whatever we're treating with their immunosuppression on hand, um, maybe considering a slight dose reduction, et cetera, depending on what you're seeing with your patient. When it comes to what happens with maybe multi-organ failure or if someone is septic in the ICU and is having some increased liver function, um, increased LFTs, sorry, wrong thing, if they had increased LFTs or if they were starting to have some AKI like our patient had here, we might need to consider changing or augmenting their immunosuppression to make sure that we're not putting them into a toxic state, particularly with their calcineurine inhibitors. Our two calcineurine inhibitors, tacrolimus and cyclosporin, both of those are metabolized by CYP3A4 in the liver. And so if someone is not having good perfusion to their liver, they're having inflammation, or they're really not able to metabolize drugs if they're that severe of a state of sepsis, we need to consider getting a level and holding until we figure out whether or not that person is still metabolizing or considering doing a potential empiric dose decrease until we can figure out what their status is. Calcineurine inhibitors are narrow therapeutic index drugs, so the risk of going into a toxic level is something we need to consider. Um, and something a little bit more technical with liver patients or patients with gastrointestinal problems when they come into your service is the way that these drugs are excreted is through your biliary tract. So if they're having something like a biliary obstruction or a biloma, that might put them into a toxic state because they're not able to get the drug out of their body. So something to consider for things that might be more in your surgical ICU type patient. If you stop or perhaps reduce the dose of these drugs, is that an effect you would see quickly? I mean, how long does it take for these changes to take effect? Is it like hours or a day or it could be days or weeks? Seeing that the levels are going down or making sure that we're not putting them at risk for rejection. I guess... I guess both. And really what you'd want to see is a more capable immune system, right? Like These two groups, the main two groups we're talking about, the mycophenolate and the tacrolimus cyclosporin, both of those are dosed twice daily. So you would start seeing an effect within three to five half-lives. That's typically within two and a half to three days, you're going to start to see the full effect of these drugs coming out of your system. Now, Immune systems do have some time for turnover. So sometimes you might have a few days to even a couple of weeks to start see the full effects of your immune system coming back on board. But the relative immunosuppression of these agents for someone coming in on maintenance immunosuppression is not going to be so robust that you're going to see a switch flipping off and on. Um, this is something just to consider as a part of maybe their response to therapies, but we know that if we put them on medications to treat their disease, 
maybe slightly lower or augment their immune suppression, we do expect a, a response. Okay, so if somebody comes in dying of an infection, you should probably reduce or stop some of these drugs, but it's not like it's going to make a world of difference in five hours. Their body is suddenly going to wake up and fight the infection off. It's just a, kind of a, a rational thing to try to put some more juice in their camp. Yeah. What is the timeline like for organ rejection, which seems like the other side of this? I mean, being off these drugs for matter of days or, or weeks, how long can you go without expecting to see problems for the organ? Again, that's really going to depend on their time from transplant and their type of organ. Risk of rejection depends on the amount of lymphoid tissue that is transplanted with that organ itself. So we typically, on a scope of rejection risk, we're considering small bowel as the highest risk of rejection. Not many places do small bowel transplants, so the likelihood of you seeing that is probably more on the rare side. Then we have lung transplant. Heart, kidney, pancreas is really in the middle there. And the least amount of rejection risk that we see of these organs is liver transplant. Um, liver transplants actually have more of an immunoprotective um, scope about them just because of how livers work in a normal working state. So that's something that we can use for our advantage and making sure that we can give more time with less agents. And long term, we see based upon that relative scale that I presented that they can go on monotherapy for maybe a liver transplant, dual therapy maybe for those those organs in the middle, and then your triple therapy for the ones on the on the other end, like lung transplant. Um, so from a timing perspective, if you're needing to hold or augment these agents, if someone is septic in the ICU and their body is focusing on an infection, typically we see that rejection risk is held off a little bit longer. That's not in every case. We have seen cases of people rejecting and being infected at the same time, and that is a hard scenario to be involved in. But we typically know that if their reason for admission is for a very severe infection, we can ease time off for days to maybe even a week or so without starting to worry about okay. those effects. So for an organ like a, a liver who is already probably on less immunosuppression, you could probably worry a little less about them coming off it, whereas something like like a lung, you'd worry more, try yes. to have it for a shorter time, but still probably safe to, you know, lighten immunosuppression for maybe some days, especially somebody who is already critically ill, maybe has something like sepsis, where not only is the, the benefit of it higher, but it sounds like they just tend to not be as so prone to rejection because their immune system is busy with something else. Yes. Now, this sounds like it is mostly the case for more time out from transplant. Huh? If you are a week post-op or something like that, um, maybe a different story. Although I imagine these are situations where there's going to be much more direct involvement from the transplant teams and our poor Joe Blow in the audience might not have to make too many decisions on their own. Yeah, I think I would hope that they're still in the transplant center if they're still in their index admission. Um, but there's probably exceptions to that case. Really, 
the first four weeks after transplant, depending on the organ, there is a high risk of infection from surgery. And the risk factors that put people into more infectious risk is post-op complications like needing dialysis or needing to go back to the OR for a bleed or a relook to see if there's something going on with the organ itself. Time in the hospital would also put them at risk for the nosocomial infections. So we do have to keep those a consideration and maybe have to hold their maintenance immunosuppression early on, at least one of the agents, if sepsis becomes a key player in their post-op complications. You'd mentioned a little bit about the effects on pharmacokinetics in critically ill patients. Um, talking about, you know, maybe a patient with some liver injury. Um, talk a little more about this. Let's say we're continuing these drugs or we reduce but didn't stop them. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that we're, you know, not at toxic levels and I guess also still at the therapeutic goals we have, whatever that might be? Um, I know in particular for the tacrolimus, people like to do levels very often. Is that something you would routinely do in a patient like this? Yeah. So, a lot of things to unpack here. I think um, looking at your calcineurin inhibitors, so your tacrolimus and cyclosporin, we do need to have appropriate monitoring to make sure they're not entering that toxic state when it comes to levels. If someone has rapidly changing organ function, daily trough levels is something that the team likely should be looking at at minimum every two to three days if you feel that someone's organ function is stable enough to make sure that they're still going to be stable after that 48 to 72 hour time period. There are many things that affect someone's levels when we're talking about calcineurin inhibitors, one of which is absorption and things that affect absorption. Um, Tacrolimus food lowers the absorption so we tell our patients to consistently take it either with food or without food. If someone is now in the ICU, NPO, maybe for a procedure for an extended amount of time, we might start seeing that their levels become elevated just because of something as simple as a nutrition status change. So very small but important details to take into consideration when you see those day-by-day -day changes in someone's level. Another thing to note here is that these agents are highly protein bound. Um, and so we typically don't see a huge shift in, say, someone's albumin or someone's amount of, um, I guess, fluid in their vasculature on a day to day basis that would affect their levels vastly. But if someone is in the hospital for a long time, and their nutrition status wanes significantly, you might see a consecutive effective change of their dosing needs with the amount of albumin, let's say, in someone's body. I do want to note here that there are a lot of potential drug interactions that we can see with these agents on board for a patient that you need to consider when starting some things. Um, we need to look at CYP 3A4, cytochrome P450, 3A4, and PGP inhibitors. 
some common groups and maybe things that people reach for more commonly are things like diltiazem and verapamil. Those will increase the levels of these drugs when started without monitoring them closely. Other things are your azole antifungals. So fluconazole, posaconazole, boriconazole, those things will drastically, depending on the agent, increase someone's level where we would need to decrease the dose even when starting the agent. Amiodarone is another one. And things like erythromycin, clarithromycin, notably not azithromycin, which is something that might be a common misunderstanding with these, with these medications. Um, so on the other side of drug interactions, maybe you'll see this in neuro ICUs or patients that might be coming in with a head injury. Um, inducers of CYP3A4 have the opposite effect. So you might need to be paying more particular attention to dosing if you're loading someone with phenytoin or phenobarbital. Um, and looping back to the patient case here, Paxlovid has ritonavir in it, which is a very, very strong inhibitor of CYP3A4, so much so that if someone is prescribed Paxlovid, we would have to hold their CNIs for the duration of therapy and maybe even up to seven days afterwards, depending on their, um, their metabolism. So this is something that is very much at, um, that should be at the top of your mind when you're starting agents in these patients. How about the mycophenolate or some of the other drugs? Do we also want to measure levels of these? Good question. You can monitor levels, but I will say the applicability of monitoring these levels is not really well understood and not something that we would be able to put much information towards if you were to get a level. Um, so I wouldn't recommend getting levels for mycophenolate or um, azathioprine the other agent. So like a mercaptopurine level, I wouldn't recommend that. Um, really, the metabolism of mycophenolate is not really changed when someone is acutely septic. It is a prodrug that is activated as soon as it gets into your bloodstream. Um, it's hydrolyzed. And the way that it's metabolized is through glucuronidation, which we don't really see many changes with for someone that is acutely having hepatic dysfunction. Um, so from changes in pharmacokinetics, I would not anticipate that as much as I would okay. with the calcium So it inhibitors. sounds like the clearance for most of these drugs is either hepatic or through magic. Uh, it does changing renal function um, <laughs> influence a lot of them, or we're sort of fortunate that most of these don't have a, a tight dependence on renal clearance? Yeah, great question here. Um, this is something that I have many talks with, with my teams of the surgical residents that come through our service, is calcineurin inhibitors, it's often misconstrued that it has to be renally dose adjusted or dose adjusted for someone that has an AKI. A side effect of calcineurin inhibitors is nephrotoxicity. That can be acute and chronic. Oftentimes in the hospital, you're seeing acute nephrotoxicity 
because maybe of high levels from other things. Um, and that can cause some vasoconstriction that leads to an AKI. However, the reason why we might be dose reducing is because of a high level contributing to an AKI, not because it's going to be affecting its excretion from your body. Um, so that's something that I often talk through with people that come through our service because that is a common thing that people may misconstrue. So even like a patient on dialysis, you wouldn't necessarily have to make adjustments? Nope. It's metabolized and excreted. It's metabolized through your liver and excreted through your, your bile. Um, so not something that we would need to do, but something that very commonly is misconstrued. Interesting. So it sounds like kidneys at least are not as much of a problem for us as they often are with drugs. Uh, someone with a lot of liver trouble, you might have to give more thought. And certainly for drugs like Tacro, just, it sounds like just send levels because it's, it's so complex and is relatively easy to do at least. Yes. And I would say from timing of levels, I know this is something that can be a feeling of hesitation if you're not used to getting levels for calcineurin inhibitors, we would do a 12-hour trough. Um, so if you know, if a patient's coming into the ICU and you happen to know when they took their dose, you can make sure you assess that with the level that you get. Oftentimes, if they're coming in from outside, you may not know that information. So the first level is really just a, a, a look at where are we at? And we don't really know the timing wise, if we need to be adjusting it yet, but we would know broad, broadly if we need to hold it because it's super high or if there's really nothing in their body because maybe they're so sick, they stop taking their medications for a couple of days. Well, how often is uh, Tacro usually taken? So Tacrolimus comes, and this is a good point here that we can talk about. Tacrolimus is available in an immediate release capsule. That's something that is the most commonly prescribed. It's taken twice a day, so every 12 hours. Um, so the amount of time that it takes to get out of your body is three to five half-lives, so starting to be two and a half to three days is what we're seeing. Um, there are extended release and, I guess, um, once daily options that are available. These, for someone that's in the ICU that's intubated, you, of course, wouldn't be able to give because they're delayed release. Um, but Invarsis is the most common extended release product that we have. This one is once daily, so every 24 hours. It's helpful because it can give the same amount of drug in a day, but it decreases the peaks of the drug in the system, which can help mitigate some neurotoxic side effects that we may see like seizures or um, tremors or headaches. But you would generally switch people to a shorter acting form if they're critically ill. So if they're unable to take whole by mouth, we would have to transition them to the IR version. The conversion, just for everyone's knowledge, is 80%. So 80% of Invarsis, you would multiply by 1.2 to get your um, immediate release daily amount and divide that in half. Oh, interesting. So but, uh, the troughs you're monitoring are essentially just a trough before they would take whatever the formulation you're giving is when you want to draw your level. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and making sure the timing of that is sound. If a level comes back high, my first question is, when was it taken? Right. Just before, not just after. Um, and these are all drugs that are 
obviously in the outpatient setting, people are taking them by mouth. Are, are they only available in enteral forms? Or if someone who can't take something through their gut, can we give it IV or through some other way? Great question. So tacrolimus has a few options um, and it depends on what their access is. These agents, tacrolimus, cyclosporin, you can't open or crush the capsules. Cyclosporin is available in a oil immersion, so that's not something that you can open or crush to give per tube. Cyclosporin is available in a suspension that most hospitals should have access to that you can give via tube. Um, there's an IV formulation of cyclosporin that you can give. There is dose reduction needs, though, so I would definitely make sure that you address this with your pharmacist to make sure that the dose reduction occurs. Um, from a tacrolimus standpoint, we have a few more options. Again, you shouldn't be opening or crushing the capsules to give per tube or mix together with applesauce if someone's having some problems taking by mouth. With that said, we can open the capsules to give it sublingually. And that has to be done very carefully because there is a 50% dose reduction that we see in most cases. Um, literature shows a range, but that's the typical um, dose reduction that we see from most providers. And the nurses who administer it do need to have appropriate protection. So double gloving, um, depending on what your hospital's policies are, typically we see a gown and a mask as well to help protect the person who's administering it. So you're just like dribbling it under the innovated patient's tongue? Yes. Yes, you are. Um, and typically you would do that one capsule at a time and allow hopefully a few minutes in between each to make sure that it is appropriately sublingually administered. Um, try not to suction for about 15 minutes if you can. Sometimes that is impossible to do. So we do have a liquid formulation that you can give via tube if someone does have enteral access. Um, I'll say this lightly, but we do have an IV version of tacrolimus. The dose reduction is also needed in the risk of ne nephrotoxicity because of the possible mistakes of reducing it less than it should is why we typically avoid IV tacrolimus. It's a continuous infusion given twice a day. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated and we prefer the sublingual if able. Um, just to touch quickly on the other agents, mycophenolate is available as an IV formulation. There's, it's a one-to-one -one conversion. There's not any special things that we need to worry for with mycophenolate. Um, it's also available as a suspension too. Okay, so we have some options depending on the patient's situation. Uh, they start to kind of get more narrow the fewer options you have. And someone who you absolutely can't use their gut, you know, they might still have some IV or sublingual forms, but hopefully that's something of a rarity. Um, you mentioned steroids, which of course we use for a number of things. And some but not all transplant patients may be on, it seems like. Um, can we pretty much just use steroids the way we use steroids? I guess acknowledging the fact that these patients are chronically exposed to glucocorticoids and therefore, you know, we should give some thought that they likely have some baseline adrenal suppression and may need higher doses and so on and so forth. Yeah, so um, 
It's actually very common to transition someone that may be acutely ill in the ICU to, to stress dose steroids, hydrocortisone, your typical dosing, um, for that time that they need it. We know the conversion of hydrocortisone is 20 milligrams per 5 milligrams of prednisone. So that's something that your pharmacist can easily figure out that their need for their maintenance immunosuppression is likely within that daily amount needed for their stress dose steroids. Of course, the differences would be the percentage of glucocorticoid effects um, between the two agents. And perhaps having a patient on steroids for that or another reason would make us feel a little bit better about holding some of their other immunosuppression? Yes. Um, it's actually a common approach that we see in the short term um, when we're figuring out what's going on with the patient. If we need to hold everything but steroids, sometimes we do need to do that. Or if we need to slightly increase their steroid dose, maybe from 5 to 10 milligrams or 10 to 20 milligrams while we hold their cell sept because they're acutely septic, that's something that we can do for the short term. Either because it's safer to have them on a steroid instead of their other drugs, or at the very least, a little more predictable. I mean, we're a little more comfortable with it. It's sort of in our wheelhouse, and then we can get them back to their weird stuff when they're a little healthier. Yeah, especially if you're worried about a bacterial infection, holding that cell sept or dose reducing it would typically be everyone's first approach to um, taking care of someone that's sick in the ICU and the anti-inflammatory effects that we see with the steroids people are much more at ease with. And it has those same effects for the other disease states at those higher doses. So um, we can use it for multiple indications if needed. Okay. Now, a patient like this who is well out of their post-transplant period, many years out, really just on kind of maintenance therapies, and who's turned up in just some hospital in the community. It's not where they had their transplant, is, is perhaps not even a center that does transplants. Um, do you think it's appropriate or necessary for these sorts of centers to at least involve the uh, transplant center that knows the patient in their care, or even to transfer the patient there? I mean, not every community hospital has a transplant pharmacist or really any expertise in these matters. Um, but on the other hand, when you're this far out from transplant, maybe there's not so much going on that's specialized that it's important. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, so that's going to, of course, depend on the individual factors of the patient that you have at hand. Um, but if it's something that a patient is far out from transplant, they may not be as connected with their transplant center as they initially were. Um, every center is different, but typically after the first year, to maybe a couple of years, maybe they're just touching base with the transplant center annually or every six months and their home pulmonologist or nephrologist, hepatologist, whatever their initial consulting um, physician was for the transplant is taking care of them long-term. Um, so if it's a commonplace infection, they're not ill to the point where you feel that you can't take care of them to the best of your ability, um, you may not need to transfer them. However, if there are complications, you figure out there's involvement of the transplanted organ, or it's more of an opportunistic infection that maybe 
people aren't as able to take care of or aren't as comfortable taking care of, transferring them to a regional center or maybe the closest transplant center may be something that they need to pursue. Okay. So at, at least maybe touching base with somebody who knows the patient, even if, you know, perhaps they're not seeing their transplant team much, but they're nephrologist who who knows them and their organ and what's been going on is is probably a, a good idea. And th- this is all talking about these patients down the road. If someone's a month out from their transplant and they get hit by a bus coming out of Whole Foods, I think they should probably go some, where someone knows them, right? Yes. And this will be different from every transplant center, but from a broad scope of things, transplant centers have a lot of support for their transplant patients, particularly early on, especially within that first year, um, half a year to a year, depending on the size of the center. Um, All of the patients have an emergency line to their coordinators that they can call and say what's going on, whether that's something that they're running into at home, maybe a new symptom, or something more of an emergent case of getting hit by a bus where they would need to let the transplant center know with what to do for next steps. All right. Well, I think it's been a good overview of this topic. Olivia, what else do you want us to know about this, either in general about transplant and the medications or, you know, in particular for clinicians or centers that are are not seeing this very much? I think the biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid of these medications. I know when people see transplant medications on someone's home medication list, immediately there might be some um, questions about if they can take care of them, if it's not that that's not something that they do every day, but breaking it down to what is their severity of disease? How far out are they? We can figure out their home medications, but just treating them as a hospitalized patient and then taking care of their transplant complications or other factors to think more critically or more broadly would be the best approach, I would say, and contacting people within a transplant center or that patient's contacts if you need to do next steps. Brian, what else? I think we've covered everything really well. Um, Real quickly, Olivia, sort of putting our patient aside, if I'm working in a community hospital, um, you know, someplace that doesn't do transplants, and I have a patient who comes in for any reason, Mm -hmm. right, on immunosuppression meds, what are the risks that I need to be aware of? You know, we hear about things like toxicity, especially with TACRO. Um, you know, how, how serious are these risks and what do I need? Just generally, what do I need to watch out for? Passing urine inhibitors can have neuro side effects. So things like tremors or headaches. And in this, in severe cases, you can have seizures or, um, press. So those things are something that are more on the rare, but acute side of things that may be related to their immunosuppression. Um, Broadly, we see patients with hyperkalemia, secondary to to these medications, Um, hypomagnesemia. So chronically, these patients have low magnesium because of how it augments the excretion of it. Um, And we see patients that may have just higher risks of hypertension, hypercholesteremia, diabetes because of these agents long term. 
Um, so you might have someone present maybe with hypertensive emergency or urgency, maybe secondary to their long-term immunosuppression or that being a factor in why they presented to the hospital. And are these side effects dose-related? In other words, if we, we keep our drugs kind of appropriately dosed, then we're good, or some of them can be idiosyncratic? Yes and no. Um, so like your steroids, you have the timing of hyperglycemia that you can see acutely, but also chronically contributing to diabetes. Um, for dosing, um, we typically see, as I mentioned before, peaks being related to the neurologic side effects that we see with CNIs. So there's ways we can mitigate that with formulations or maybe dose reduction if we're able to. But long-term, the hypertension, cholesterol, weight gain, those chronic disease states are really just for overall burden over time, really unrelated to the exact dosing that someone has, but it's just the long-term effect of multiple agents lifelong. So when these problems pop up, how do we tease out, like, you know, you mentioned like headaches and confusions, the neurotoxicity. Is that correlate well with levels, drug levels, or how do I know if my patient is having neurological symptoms because of their immunosuppression or something else? Yeah, so unfortunately, it's it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, so they might have other electrolyte abnormalities that might be contributing contributing to their encephalopathy. Um, I would use it as a piece of a puzzle and not the solution to every problem because there are many things that can contribute. And every day the transplant team is trying to figure out whether or not it's a side effect contributing to someone's presenting symptoms or it's something that's going on with the patient and their immunosuppression is just an auxiliary factor within that, that presentation. Unfortunately, case-by-case -case basis, and it's something that we do on a daily basis. Um, I will say a piece of advice just for the general um, group here that's listening is that transplant teams, transplant specialties, we live in the gray for a lot of the patient's case. Um, there's not really a black and white answer to something sometimes because these meds are highly individualized. The way that these patients react to these, to these medications is also highly variable. Um, we're comfortable with that. I know explaining this to other people, maybe like people that are used to a cardiology approach or a structured surgical approach may not be as comfortable with that. Um, but just using this as a piece of the puzzle rather than making sure that it has to be related to that immunosuppression, if that makes sense. We can probably wrap it up there. I think this has been a really helpful look and I hope, I hope some form of reassurance to those out here who uh, feel a surge in blood pressure when they hear the word transplant. Uh, <laughs> a reminder to everyone that this is just some general educational content, as enriching as it is, not medical advice, and I hope you are using other resources as well, although you may not have an Olivia in your back pocket. Uh, and none of us are representing our institutions here. We're just sharing our own perspectives. Uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.